Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and if you're looking in the Pew Bible, it's on page 883. Luke 23, and we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Luke together. Luke 23. In our passage today, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas in the garden where He's pleading with His Father to take the cup of suffering that is passing His way. And Judas betrays Him and the leaders of the synagogue come and take Him and put Him in their custody. And then they have a series of charges that they bring against Him so that then they take Him to Pontius Pilate because they don't want to appear that they don't have their stuff together. And so, so they go to Pontius Pilate with Jesus and they say, hey, will you take care of this person who is causing all of this dissension. We, we don't want to you know, cause too much trouble here. And so they go to Pontius Pilate, and that's where we find ourselves here in this passage in chapter 23. And it's vital, as Chad mentioned to us, to understand that Palm Sunday is not this... It's a time of triumph because God's people were wanting a king, the Messiah, to come into Rome or into Jerusalem and to sack the Roman leader. At that time, it was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and they were expecting the Messiah to come and just do away with the oppressors. And as we've looked at time and again throughout Scripture, that that is the cry of God's people, and there's not anything horrible or wrong about that. You and I oftentimes pray that, that God, would you destroy the wicked? Would you take care of the mess that we're in? God, would you come and save us from our oppressors? There's not, that's not a bad prayer. In fact, that's a really good and righteous prayer, and that's what we see throughout the Psalms. Lord, would You break the arm of the wicked? Would You bring us relief from our enemies? And that's what Israel is longing for. And so as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, they're expecting that to happen. In fact, we, if you recall to mind some of, the, some of the things, the questions that were being asked of Jesus, they were saying, is it at this time that You're going to restore Israel to its rightful place and honor? Right? There's this longing, there's expectation that, that God is going to come and crush Satan underneath their feet. And in my more honest moments, and maybe you're like me in your honest moments, if we're honest with ourselves, we really just want God to do what we want. We really just want God to do what we want. And I can often operate from the assumption that the answer to my prayers is to do away with my problems. We can oftentimes assume that that is the answer to our prayer. Lord, would You just take this away? Would You just deal with this? Because I can't handle it anymore. And In our American culture, it can be anything from why doesn't God answer my prayers for that promotion? I would... would lead this organization a whole lot better than my boss? Or, um, why did God let our car break down for the fourth time? Or, doesn't God care that I'm lonely and I'd make a good husband or wife for somebody? Doesn't God see and doesn't God care? So, what is it that you would fill the blank in? 
What is the prayers that you're crying out for God to just bring you relief? And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's not bad to pray for those things. It's not bad to pray that, that God would meet your needs and take care of you financially and take care of your relationships. That's not a bad thing. But when we start shaking our fists and when we start demanding that the Messiah do what we want Him to do in our prescribed way, that's the problem. And that's what Israel succumbed to. And that's what God's people for the centuries that have since come since Jesus has been crucified, that's what God's people are always in danger of, and that's what I'm in danger of and all of us are in danger of, is that we assume that we know what the answer to our prayers are. And this is what Jesus was at pains to show His people when He rode into Jerusalem. That their greatest longings were met in a person and not a circumstance. And your greatest longings in life are not met in your circumstance being changed as much as in a person who comes in the midst of your circumstances to commune with you, to remind you of His great love for you. And so the main point as I have studied this, and I think the main point of the passage today of this chapter 23 in Luke is this. Although we despise and reject our guiltless King, He offers us mercy and rest. Although we despise and reject our guiltless King, God still offers us mercy and rest. So that main point is going to roughly form the outline for today's message. So first of all, in verses 1-25, through 25, a guiltless king is despised and rejected. A guiltless king is despised and rejected. That's point one. And so let's look together at verses 1-25. through 25. I'll just read these uh, here for us. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Remember, they were in the synagogue. They had already tried Jesus under their Jewish law, and they then said, Okay, Pilate, you need to tend to this. So the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. 
And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! A third time He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found in Him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release Him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that He should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. You see, in the previous chapter, in chapter 22, Jesus is with His disciples celebrating the Passover meal. And you know what the disciples are arguing? They're arguing... Who is the greatest in the kingdom? That's what they're concerned about on the, on the Passover meal as they're celebrating their redemption. They're arguing with each other and they're debating with one another. And just imagine for a moment what that kind of conversation would go like. We may do that in our mind's eye. Like, we're, we're not going to say it out loud, but the disciples are doing it out loud. And so can you imagine Peter might be saying, hey, I was, I was the first one that Jesus called. And he forgot that James and John were also there when Jesus called him, right? He's very mind, not, kind of has a selective memory. Or, or Matthew, the tax collector, could have said, Well, I understand y'all were fishermen, but I was a tax collector. I had a ton of money. I was living the comfortable life, and I gave it all up for Jesus. I'm the greatest. I'm more humble than all y'all. <laughs> we may not be as vocal. But don't you know what it's like to look at others and wonder what kind of mistakes they made in life? As you look at somebody who's pushing a shopping cart on the side of the road, and you're like, man, what did they do? What kind of bad decisions did they make in their life? I'm glad I'm not like that person. We often do that, don't we? We often consider that life is much like an equation as opposed to a set of circumstances that we don't really understand and that we only see through a very small lens reality. And we make all kinds of judgments on other people. And we, in the back of our minds, whether we, we like to admit it or not, and I may be, this may just be personal confession time, but I think many of us can succumb to that. That we think that we are greater than the person sitting next to us in the pew. Or that we are greater and our sins are less than the person that we live with. Or the person that we work with. Or the person that we pass along the street. Because we got our stuff together. And I think the Lord would remind us that we are no better than the disciples arguing with each other. We look at others and we wonder, why they can't get their act together. And the Lord would say, don't be so quick that you also don't want the kind of 
king that Israel wanted in the next chapter, in our particular chapter. Because this is the same issue that the crowds are dealing with. The issue that the disciples were dealing with in the upper room of who was the greatest is the same thing that the crowds are shouting for and trying to make sense of in this moment in chapter 23, is that they wanted a king who would come and destroy their enemies. Three times, we are told, in verses 4, 14, and 22, that Jesus was guiltless. And I've tried to get into the psychology of such a mob justice, and as best as I can consider this... um, Consider the times that I have chosen my own way, that I've chosen the path of self-righteousness and self-justification, of self-absorption, that I become the center of my life, putting myself before others, thinking of myself more highly than I think of other people. These are the decisions that the crowds also make by choosing Barabbas by demanding their way, by saying, we would rather have an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist is someone who was trying to start a uh, civil war and trying to you know, overthrow the government. And there were tons of, of self-proclaimed messiahs at this time in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't the first messiah that people have grown to, accustomed to hearing about, but the messiahs that had come before Jesus and the ones who came, at, who came after Jesus too, these messiahs were saying, follow me and we're going to take care of this Roman government. They wanted to be the greatest nation and they were willing to free someone guilty of murder over someone who was guiltless. See, Barabbas is the kind of leader that people want. He wasn't someone who was going to fix everything and overthrow them. And I can't help but think that maybe in the back of their minds they were thinking, hey, maybe if we, Barabbas is freed, maybe he'll free us from the Roman government. And this is what Peter was trying to do in the garden himself. When, when Judas betrays Jesus in chapter 22, what does Peter do? He picks up a sword and he begins to start fighting. He lops off an ear and Jesus heals the ear right, of the, of the uh, servant. But that's what Peter is doing. He's trying to say, okay, it's time for us to take up the sword and it's time for us to do what we've been waiting for Jesus to do all along. But I submit to you that the path of resistance that Jesus calls us to is a harder resistance, a more difficult path a more miraculous type of resistance than just picking up, picking up a sword and fighting for your rights is much easier than the miraculous, difficult work of turning the other cheek when someone hits you. Of not gossiping and slandering behind closed doors. That's the harder work and that's the heart work that is required that God is saying, yeah, but what, what are you doing? Like, What are you doing with your life? The Lord wants to free us instead of longing for a Barabbas to long for a king who can submit our wills and change our hearts to refuse to gossip and cut down other people that get on our nerves or hurt our feelings who don't see how awesome we are and give us the obedience that we want. He demonstrates His love for them and us, while we are still His enemies. Consider what we heard just a few moments ago from Philippians 2. 
He emptied himself and became, I'm sorry, taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And then we heard in Isaiah 53, Behold my servant who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That is the king that we follow. The one who was beaten and broken. The one who took the path of suffering. But this one who was despised and rejected by men while we were yet his enemies, he offers us mercy. Right? That's our second point, and that's verses 26 through 43. That he extends mercy to enemies. He extends mercy to enemies. Let me read verse 26 through 43. And as they led him away, speaking of Jesus, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, is roughly following the, the paragraphs here from 26 to, to 43, first of all, we see him extending mercy to the women of Jerusalem, to all those who were beating their breast and crying out. And I mean, you can't, can't imagine the sight of this. And they are mourning and they're weeping like this is a horrible, horrible sight. And after being scourged beyond recognition, he mercifully tells them of a great tumult to come. It's a mercy to be told to grieve for the pain. It is a mercy for the suffering servant to tell the women to consider their own lives and to seek God's face. So the Lord has mercy on all of these people. He says, yes, yes, it's, it's fine that you are crying and mourning for what's happening to me, but consider your own 
lives and consider the pain and suffering that is to come. And God is merciful. Jesus Himself is merciful to these folks saying, consider the times and consider your own lives. Consider what God is doing by this uh, sacrifice that is happening. So the Lord extends mercy to them. and He also extends mercy, secondly, to murderers. To the very people who were killing Him. Look at verse 34 again. I mean, this this is incredible, and sometimes we can just kind of breeze over it. But Jesus, while He is crucified, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I oftentimes think, yeah, they knew what they were doing. They were crucifying Jesus. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing, but Jesus is not speaking of the actual events that are happening, but to the ignorance in which we often sin against God. I'm going to give all of us the benefit of the doubt is that when we sin against God, sometimes we know what we're doing, but oftentimes, especially if we are, you know, call ourselves Christians, a lot of times we do it out of ignorance. And so we, we can oftentimes forget that God's way, although it's more difficult, offers you and me grace and beauty and an abundant life. And we oftentimes settle for just mud pies. We oftentimes settle for these quick fixes to our problems as opposed to doing the hard work of letting God do His work in our hearts. But Christ looks at us in the mire of our own poor decisions and He has compassion on us. He gently tells you that you didn't know the full weight of what you were doing. He gives you and me the benefit of the doubt and intercedes to the Father on your behalf in your ignorance that you sinned not fully knowing that you were killing yourself in doing that particular thing that you really wanted to run after. And and Jesus Himself mercifully asked for God to forgive those who were even murdering Him. And then thirdly, the third place we see him having mercy. He looks to his right and he sees a criminal who was convicted in receiving the just punishment, the just penalty for his sin. Unlike Barabbas who was able to have the benefit of the scapegoat and to be able to go free, this criminal was being hanged right next to Jesus. The one on his right has his eyes open and is no longer ignorant for who he is offended. Jesus extends mercy to the ignorant, but He also extends mercy and grace to those who will confess their ignorance, confess their rebellion, and cry out to Him for that mercy. He extends that mercy to those who are broken, to those who see their need. We hear the criminal cry in verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A very clear confession that he knows that he is the king even though he's being crucified right next to him. And in that moment, he confessed Jesus as Lord and with what little he knew. He didn't know all of the particulars of systematic theology. He didn't know all the particulars of of the history of Israel. And Jesus' reply is no less startling. In verse 43, he says, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Just consider that. 
this merciful one, looks at a criminal and says, all you need to do is look to me to be saved. All you need to do is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the Lord will have mercy on you too. And you may look at an accounting of your life over the last week even and say, man, I really blew it. And maybe even in your heart of hearts, you're thinking about 50 other things right now than this moment. And the Lord says to you, I will have mercy on you if you look to Me. If you can cut through all of the busyness and all the noise that is your life and you will look to Me, I will have mercy on you. You don't have to be ignorant anymore. But when you see the heinousness of your sin and the choices that you make, there's mercy there. There's no condemnation for those who look to Christ and are saved. There there has to be a point in our lives of what Isaiah brings us to in the passage that we heard a moment ago. He says, surely, instead instead of looking at Jesus and saying, man, Jesus is really merciful, that's amazing. There has to be a point in our lives where we say, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, you're healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. That is the beauty of being a Christian is that every single one of us can look at each other and say, you too? Because every single one of us, every day goes astray. We run after our own ways. We have turned everyone. Everyone. Notice the inclusive language that, that Isaiah gives here. Everyone to his and her own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. But, but, at the end of that chapter, what does Isaiah say? He says, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession. Who does He make, him, who, who does he make intercession for? He makes intercession for the transgressors. For the very ones who look to Him and crucify Him. Who look to Him and say, I think I know a better way. And I'm going to run after that instead. The Lord Himself dies for that as well. He gives mercy for the ignorant and He gives mercy for the openly rebellious. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own path. And the sooner we reckon with that, the sooner we can come to our third point. And that is, His death offers rest for the weary. His death offers rest to the weary. And we see that in verses 44 through 56. If you'd read along with me. It was now about the sixth hour, which is about 12 o'clock, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'm sorry, that's 12 o'clock. <laughs> While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. 
and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I don't think it's just a time marker here that Luke is calling for us to see. He mentions twice in verse 54 and then again in verse 56 that it was the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And what Luke is telling us at the end of our chapter is on the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment and then Jesus Himself was resting on Holy Saturday. He was resting from His finished labors on Good Friday. Jesus Himself was resting and following the Sabbath command Himself perfectly. Even in His death, He was obeying God's command on the Sabbath day. So why does Luke do that? I think he's telling us that Jesus, in His very death, is offering us not just mercy, but true rest for our souls. And I'm where, where do we see that? It's, it, it, at some point, the people, not only the centurion, but all the people, they realize what they had done. And have you ever been at that moment and you see what you have done and you say, I am such a loser. I call myself a Christian. How could I ever have done that? And you like the people and like the centurion say, I am, I am horrible. Woe is me. I'm a broken person. And the Lord says, there's rest for you. When you cease to try to fix yourself, there is rest for you. There is Sabbath, true Sabbath rest that Jesus can give you when you feel the conviction of your sin that you were ignorant in doing and that you were openly rebellious. And God says, I will have not only mercy on you, but I will give rest to your soul. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 22 where we read, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And Jesus uses these same words as He's suffering on the cross. And just a a brief parenthetical note here is that the communion, this is oftentimes considered that Jesus, you know, the Father just forsakes His Son and He turns away and that's what's happening here. Let me just say this, that the communion between the Father and the Son did not stop. It did not cease to happen. That would mean that the Trinity ceased to be the Trinity. There would be a breaking of the Trinity. So that did not happen. That's that's close parenthesis. So when Jesus is saying that, what is He saying? What is He saying? Well, I think that Matthew tells us, Jesus quoted this, to remind us, to remind you and me, that Jesus knows when you too in the watches of the night have felt abandoned by God. Have you ever 
as you're laying awake at night or been roused from sleep, your heart racing, your mind wandering, and, and you feel like your prayers are not being heard at all, and you say, God, have, why have you left me? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Jesus is reminding you that He too has felt abandoned by God. He was not abandoned just like you are not abandoned in those moments, even though you feel like it. If you hear nothing else this morning, know that God has not abandoned you even though you feel like it. Even though in the dark watches of the night and even in the dark watches of your soul that God has not abandoned you. He's not left you to yourself. And even though you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I'm not. I'm here with you in your midst. He knows your pain and your suffering, friend. Consider the rest of the Psalm 22. And, and I would consider that when Jesus recites, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that it would do us well to read the entire Psalm 22. Because that's not the end of the story. But he, he comes alongside you and He says, I know what it means to be abandoned by friends. I know what it feels like to be alone. The ones who I entrusted myself with they ran away. And he says, I am poured out. This is Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And we can lay a lot of emphasis on that first part. And it is true and right for us to understand that Jesus Himself felt abandoned. He felt like He was melting. But the rest of that psalm is really important to read too. We have to read the rest of the psalm. We must read to the end of Psalm 22. Only then can we understand when John tells us that Jesus says, it is finished. And then when Luke says, into your hands I commit my spirit, what is happening here? Jesus doesn't just give up and say, I'm broken. He says, no, it's finished. It's accomplished. The suffering has been bought by my own blood. Because the rest of Psalm 22 says this, For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted, what will they do? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him, my friend, if you seek Him, you shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever and ever. It isn't until we're broken over what our hands have done that we are able to receive the rest our hearts are craving in life. Like the centurion who realized, like the crowds who beat their breasts as they realized, we enter into the conviction and we confess that we too have abandoned God day in and day out. We have denied that we know Him when push comes to shove. But then we will also sing here in a moment, O sacred head now wounded. And we confess that mine, mine was the transgression. And we own that. And we say, you have I offended, O Lord. But, 
Thine, the deadly pain. The Lord offers to you this morning, though you feel abandoned, though you feel convicted of your sin, though you feel like you can't get your act together, the Lord says, I can work with that if you will come to Me and receive rest for your souls, if you will receive true Sabbath rest by coming to a person not relying on your obedience, not relying on, on this litany of things that you got right, but looking at all the things that you got wrong and to say that Jesus suffered that pain in my place for my transgressions. And He offers that mercy and that rest to all those who will come to Him. Let's pray.